Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. <laughs> Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 7. Episode 16. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and in this episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you, all of them from author B.T. Joy, about vicious viruses, timeless trauma, horrendous habits, and houses of horror. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support, and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. This show is about to begin. Our first tale tonight from B.T. Joy, 
was originally published in Nightwatch Press's 2015 horror anthology, Sunny with a Chance of Zombies. Though it was written years ago, however, its topic may just hit a little closer to home this year. Without further ado, I present to you Sunny and the Ugly Man. Andrew wasn't sure what his dominant emotion was as he watched the news article unfolding on CNN, but he was pretty certain it was somewhere on the spectrum between hatred and hopelessness. Probably closer to hopelessness by this point, on account of the fact that similar events had been reported every day that month by the national stations and those of every major city in the country. The current demonstration had begun in the center of Douglas Park as an organized gathering of the Chicago branch of SIAV survivors. But around noon, it had spilled out onto the West Roosevelt Road and all the adjoining avenues for a distance of five blocks. The demonstrators held up placards marked with the same old slogans. The multitudes of people who'd turned out to protest, all sufferers of the virus, were beginning to block traffic on the 290. Police barricades and mounted units had been posted down the lengths of Independence Boulevard and Lexington Street, effectively hemming the protest in. For the moment, the men in the riot gear and those on the shuffling horses were biding their time, awaiting further orders. The CNN report cut abruptly from the wide bird's-eye view of the thronging streets north of Douglas Park to focus on a hub of activity on the corner of Roosevelt and Sacramento. From this vantage point, you could see the faces of the protesters more clearly. The month-old scabs and new lesions threaded through the skin of their scalps and faces. The exposed and rotted wounds as large as dinner plates. The fluid that ran from their orifices in dried yellow to the sides of their heads and mouths. The news reporter got in close to one of the protesters and offered the microphone to his chapped mouth. Andrew recognized the protester at once and immediately upped the volume on his set to listen. It was Cesar Bennett, a former Chicago City Council supervisor who'd contracted SIAV three years ago and later resigned from office due to the unconscionable methods the government had employed in combating the virus. Listen. He grabbed the microphone in a hand scaled by dry pustules. You could see the news reporter balk as she let the mic go. Bennett hardly noticed her revulsion. His eyes were deep and angry and staring down the lens of the camera at the national audience. I want everyone to listen. He raised his voice above the general sounds of the discontent from around and behind him. Because there's a lot not coming out through media bias. Since January, four years ago, when this virus first presented itself, 29 SIAV survivors have been shot and killed by law enforcement in Chicago alone. The tone in Bennett's voice was drawing the attention of his fellow protesters, some presenting their own banners to the TV camera, others just listening, staring at Bennett with their cloudy eyes. 
Andrew, too, in the fourth-floor apartment of his condo in Bridgeport, watched Bennett through his own steadily developing cataracts. What we expect from our police and our government is simple. Bennett gesticulated furiously at the viewers. We expect compassion. We expect support. We expect medical assistance. The SIAV sufferers behind him made a single, unanimous sound of assent. What we don't expect is to be treated as social pariahs because of an illness we did not choose. The cries behind Bennett got wilder and more insistent. These are not the Dark Ages, and this is not the bubonic plague. We are not at fault, and we are not responsible for our sickness. We are survivors. The crowd was beginning to get restless, shouting out slogans, punching at the air. The news reporter tried to get her mic back from Bennett's death grip. Obviously, she'd been given a cue to round things up. But Bennett held firm and shouldered her out of his way, stepping yet closer to the camera and staring even more intensely into the living rooms of the masses. I've heard talk, he shouted, talk of euthanizing SIAV survivors for the good of public health. But I'm here to tell you this. Both the virologist at PASCV and the CDC agree categorically that SIAV is not contagious. We will continue to say this while there's still breath in our bodies. You cannot catch this virus from this. We're not the problem. We're not contagious. One man in the background, his palate and lips cleft with a scuzzy growth, screamed a response. We are not contagious. We are not contagious. We are not contagious, Bennett exclaimed, pointing angrily into the camera lens. The reporter started trying in earnest to wrestle the microphone from the protest leader's hand. More of the shambling crowd had begun to wander closer and closer to the camera. We are not contagious, they shrieked in shrill, sick voices. We are not contagious. Bennett released the microphone disgustedly, turned to his crowd and punched the air. We are not contagious, he shouted to them. The view of the camera shuddered as the operator nearly tripped, trying to back away from the growing mass of diseased human bodies. The pictures remained of Bennett whipping the crowd into a frenzy of civil unrest, starting them off on the familiar chant that had become the rallying call of the entire SIAV survivors movement. They chanted, all of them as one heaving body. Fear is, rage is, we are not contagious. Fear is, rage is, we are not contagious. Fear is, rage is, we are not contagious. Andrew killed the TV, and as the screen blackened, he caught sight of his own reflection in the liquid crystal cells. Believe it or not, he was looking better today. His hair was almost entirely gone, which was a shame. Before the virus, he'd worn it long, and Heather had once told him it was the thing that turned her on to him the most. 
how it could be both rugged and neat at the same time. The white undervest he was currently wearing was flecked here and there with patches of brown, where the skin, having no natural integrity, had broken, releasing a spew of blood, pus, and the related antibodies owed onto his clothing. Practically every item of linen he owned had to be laundered twice a day, and his bed, oh, Jesus Christ, the sheets looked like a slaughterhouse attendant's apron most nights, when he finally tumbled in. The worst lesions were on his neck and shoulders, his hands and feet, his left calf, his right elbow, and on both the external and internal tissues of his anus. Now his torso was beginning to show signs of decay. Blessedly, his face had survived all but the most superficial damage, and really, apart from a slight cloudiness in his eyes, he looked almost normal. The best medical authorities he could afford on his invalidity check, which, due to the strain on SIAV on welfare, was tiny, assured him that things would only get worse, and really, it was only a matter of time before cells in every portion of his body would begin to degenerate. That was the problem with SIAV. No one knew anything about it. No one knew. Not really. Which part of the patient's body would start rotting next? SIAV. They called it that because they didn't know what else to call it. SIAV. Systemic Intracellular Autolysis Virus. In other words, every cell in your body had the potential to turn cannibal. The lab coats over at PASCV were working on the assumption, or so Andrew had read, that the virus had somehow latched onto a subunit of the human cell which regulates the flow of digestive enzymes. In the healthy human body, as far as Andrew could gather, these enzymes are released by dead cells so that the cell can devour itself and leave room in the system for new growth. The problem was that the SIAV virus had gotten into the enzyme-producing subunits of living cells, and it was tirelessly sending the same message over and over and over again. Eat, eat, eat. It was around 3 p.m. now, though he wouldn't know it. The fog was so dense in Bridgeport that Andrew... Through the windows of the condo, couldn't even see as far as 31st Street. When on a good day, he remembered, you could see clean out to the pond at Morrisley Park. As he rose from the sofa, he wondered if it was the fog or his eyes that obscured his vision. It didn't matter. He got up anyway. He had a regime to keep to if he wanted to maintain even a ghost of human fitness. He had to stay focused. The only two things that mattered to him in the world now depended on it. Sonny and the custody battle. He shambled from the living room to the adjoining kitchen, wandered inside and opened up the fridge. His lip curled with distaste at the sight of it. It's the regime, he told himself. Think of Sonny. Think of the custody. He reached into the coldness and retrieved the chilled china bowl, filled with all that chilled pink spew. He carried it back into the living room and slumped like a slob on the sofa again. 
He would have to give this dive a good cleaning if he wanted to have a chance of appearing human to the social services. He put his hand into the bowl and fingered out a chunk or two of its vile contents. He pushed the slimy substance onto his body, chapped mouth and physically gagged down. Still, he thought, a year and a half, and I still gag every time. It was better back then, though, he reminded himself, back when the health authorities first discovered that cerebral matter could be used to ameliorate the symptoms of SIAV. Back then, they'd stocked the butcher shops with the brains of prime A-grade beef. You could take it home, slice it and dice it, and saute the stuff in Greek olive oil with your pick of fresh herbs. Later in the year, the CDC discovered that cooking the brain matter completely compromised the effectiveness of the treatment, and so the SIAV sufferers were relegated to chowing down on raw cow brains instead of cooked. Then, later on, the cost to the cattle industry grew too onerous, and so the bovine cerebral matter was slowly phased out in favor of the parts of lower, less prized animals. Uh, the delight that Andrew was even now feeding himself was most probably a mixture of 5% sheep, 5% pig, and 90% poultry. Shut up and take your medicine, he said to himself, cramming the rest of the filth into his craw, chewing and then forcing a swallow. The authorities recommended purchasing and consuming around 600 grams of cerebral matter per week, a euphemism which they would insist on using. Andrew was up to 1,100 grams, and although the ingestion of more than the recommended amount was not proved to heighten the results, Andrew was sure it was his gorging that was keeping him in slightly better shape than some other poor sons of bitches he could mention. He put the bowl down on the coffee table and sat back on the sofa, listening to the brains of dead animals swill around in the acidic enzymes of his stomach, making him well again, or well enough at least to convince the courts he was making an effort. He sat there for a long time, staring at the opposite wall through his cloudy, purblind eyes, and thinking about Sonny. She was five now, and since she turned three, he hadn't been able to see her without a bailiff between them. Fathers didn't have many rights to begin with, but even those rights are defined to sick fathers. He wasn't happy, but he found himself smiling, thinking about that last time, up in the family courthouse. Little Sonny was so unafraid of him, to her, he wasn't sick. It was just Daddy. He remembered her with little warm hands, chubby on his cool, thin hands. He remembered her dimpled finger pointing at the putrid scabs on his fingers. Daddy has a bad bed, she said. Andrew's smile broadened. That's what you called them, the legions. Bad beds. Daddy, she said. Then she pointed at her own elbow, where the tiniest purple shine was the only evidence of a fall she'd had that day in the park. Sonny has a bad bad, 
No, baby. He touched her elbow. Sonny's got no bad bads. Sonny's perfect. For some reason, Sonny's lip had trembled and her eyes welled up. Then came the request. Kiss it better, Daddy, she asked, presenting her elbow. The bailiff made a hoarse sound at the back of his throat. Andrew looked back over at him acidly, where he was sitting only a few feet away. Then he looked down at Sonny. I can't, baby. He said, Kissing your kid was one of those rights they take away when you get sick. Please, Daddy. Sonny was getting really close to bawling. Kiss it better. Sonny, Andrew looked at her sternly. Stop. Then, and it happened in seconds, Sonny let out a piercing scream and started crying for her mother. Heather, who'd been waiting outside anxiously the whole time, broke into the room like there was a fire. She rushed to her daughter, their daughter, and whisked her up in her arms. She's okay, Andrew made to approach them, but the bailiff stood in his way. Andrew eyeballed him, but he wasn't backing down. For Christ's sakes, she's okay. Sonny was screaming at this point. She'll be okay. I think we should leave. Heather nodded to the bailiff, and the bailiff nodded back. Then, as though Andrew didn't have a say at all, Heather began carrying their child back out of the visitation room. Heather! Andrew called after her, but she never answered. The bailiff barred him with one strong, healthy arm. Andrew could feel every rag and chaff and tear in his skin prickling like a living thing, like a buzzing hive of cannibalistic cells. He felt like the most disgusting freak alive. "'For God's sakes!' he shouted, as the door slammed behind Heather and Sonny. It was pathetic. "'For God's sakes!' he shouted again. "'I've got fifteen more minutes!' Today had been worse than most days, and now the night was falling over Bridgeport and all over Chicago. Andrew supposed it was the severity of the protest over at Douglas Park that had gotten him so morose. He remembered Cesar Bennett and his mob. He remembered what they were chanting and how the frightened camera crew backed away from the riotous crowd and their disgusting bodies. Fear is, rage is, we are not contagious, they chanted. Fear is, rage is, we are not contagious. Fear is, rage is, we are not contagious. Andrew thought lazily about who came up with all that bullshit. All those militant mantras, folk chanted rallies and sit-ins. Make love, not war. We're here. We're queer. Get used to it. Hands up. Don't shoot. They all seemed a little too well penned and rehearsed to have arisen from some spontaneous outpouring of emotion. So Andrew had this theory that the media wrote the slogans and secretly leaked them to the protesters. Also, they'd have a catchy jingle to report later on, something that would sell papers. They were right, though. The chanters, chanting on Roosevelt and Sacramento, 
They weren't contagious, not one of them. They couldn't pass anything more serious on to the next man than the common cold, and yet they were banned from the subway, and some bars wouldn't accept their custom. And yet people stared at them on street corners like they were something out of a horror movie. And yet they couldn't kiss their children goodbye at the family court. There was a contagion, all right, but it wasn't cellular. It had nothing to do with viruses or cell walls rotting to an incoherent scuzz in the presence of caustic enzymes. No, it was deeper than that. It was happening deep down on a DNA level. Fear, and fear becoming anger. That was the contagion. Give it something to hate, with a body as ugly as Andrew's had become, and watch it spread like flames in dry grass. That's why Heather had left him, of course, the fear. But who could blame her? She'd fallen for his rakish long hair, for his come-to-bed eyes, not to mention his tricks in the sack. Now what was he? Bald and partially blind. He smelled bad, like iron and urine, and he followed up the linens with brown blood three times a day. And as for sex, his genitals had withered like the rest of his body. When naked, he appeared so androgynous he could barely stand to look at himself. Something was wrong. He sat up on the sofa and pressed his hand hard against his stomach. The pounds of sheep and pig and chicken brains were lying unusually heavy on his innards. He frowned and pressed harder. His guts gurgled and the pain intensified. He pulled himself up from the sofa and started making his way over to the bathroom. Perhaps it was time for the onerous daily duty of evacuating his intestines. Andrew had only just opened the bathroom door when it happened. He'd fallen down by the toilet so hard he heard his knees crack on the tiles. His festering mouth had opened like the outlet of a gutter, and all that partially digested fodder had spilled out onto the enamel pan. It hadn't even been like vomiting up his dinner, more like vomiting himself, more like his tissue loosening and foaming up through the largest and most convenient opening. Now, looking down at the blood-covered U-bend, Andrew saw the horrible reason for that feeling. In there, among his brains, he thought, as of medication, part of his stomach lining floated like a discarded call in the ugly water. That was the reason, the CDC said, not to eat so much. The stomach couldn't take it. Andrew shivered. He couldn't tell if it was tears or pus that leaked from his eyes as he reached up and flushed part of himself into the underground sewers. He knew the feeling, though, and it was hopelessness. Things weren't going to get better. Hell, he'd seen them. The others, the other poor bastards suffering from his disease. Walking corpses. Bodies dead and all but their beating hearts. Eyes totally white, all extremities gone. Teeth exposed in perpetual snarls. Eyelids and noses festered to redundant scabs. Gender rotted away because it's no longer necessary. 
Not human, he thought to himself. They're not human. Andrew moved as quickly as his decaying joints would allow. He moved from the iron smell of the bathroom to the iron smell of the bedroom, where his sheets stank like the funeral shroud of a violent death. Only one thing mattered now. Sonny. He had to see Sonny while he still had eyes. He had to hear her voice before the rot set in, reducing his world to the wine of tinnitus. He had to be her daddy again, while he still was her daddy. He found his old stained jeans on the bed and searched the pockets. Christ, even that was painful on his hands. He found the cell phone in there and flicked through until he reached the most familiar number. He didn't hesitate, as he had on other occasions. He pressed call and pushed the cell against his ear. Come on, pick up, pick up, pick up. He chanted under his breath. After ten tortuous rings, the call connected and Andrew's eyes flickered when he heard Heather's voice. Hello? Heather, he said. Andy? He could see her expression in his mind all frowning puzzlement and a concern that verged on the parental. Heather, don't hang up the phone, he pleaded. What's wrong, Andy? she answered. It's nearly 12.15. Are you hurt? He couldn't concentrate. Pus was leaking from his eyes. No, I, I, I'm fine, he lied. But, Heather, listen. Oh, Christ, Andy. Heather sounded disappointed. This isn't about Sonny, is it? She's my kid, too, Heather. Andrew tried to reason, but the tone in his voice was too fevered to appear convincing. I'm not having this conversation again, Andy, Heather said sternly. The courts decided you're not well enough to cope with Sonny. This bullshit, Heather. You're not well enough, Andy. Well, I'm not getting better. Andy surprised himself at how fierce, almost animal his voice was. He tried to calm himself down. Heather, he slumped down, sitting on the floor, his back against the foot of his bed. There's nothing of me left. He was crying. Nothing. Pieces of me keep falling away, and, and I'm scared, Heather. There was a silence on Heather's end but he could tell she was listening. He turned his teary cataracts toward the bedroom window. The fog was deep and wide across the city. Somewhere out there, men and women, no longer men or women, were wandering blindly through the street. Sometimes I think about those things. He told her, they just come walking into my thoughts, you know? Those things from horror movies... And I think, what must that be like? A massive silence in you. This complete dementia. Amnesia. But you're still walking. And you don't know why. And you'll never know why again. Andy! Heather sounded like she was crying, too. You'll be all right, Andy. They'll find an antiviral, something... Andrew wiped the tears from his eyes, his features set. No, he said. 
The doctors say it's only a matter of time. It hasn't happened to anyone yet, but the virus, soon it's going to start eating the brain, and then, Heather, we're not going to be human anymore. Andy, you're scaring me, she said. You're not as scared as we are. He looked out at the rolling fog. You'll never be as scared as we are. He blinked his thoughts away and then remembered Heather on the other side of the line. It was hopeless. Hopeless. The courts were against him. Heather was against him. His own body was against him. He knew a guy to speak to who hung around Armour Square most nights. He said he could get him an unlicensed firearm for a hundred bucks. SAIAV didn't kill you. Some were saying it kept you alive. But he could take his own road out. He'd go out there tonight, find the guy by the gun. Then he'd put it in his mouth and pull the trigger. They say if you destroy the brain, even the virus dies. It's okay, Heather. His voice was sedate, even pleasant. I'm sorry I called. He made to hang up. Wait. His voice stopped him, mid-action. Listen, Andy, listen. She paused. Andrew could tell she was thinking. You can come over. She said it quickly, so he didn't have time to censor herself. Andrew blinked. He could hardly believe she said it. She's been talking about you. Heather went on. Every night, actually. Andrew just sat crying and listening. We've been reading fairy stories, Heather said. Every time we get to the end of the book, she says, we've got to leave the last story for Daddy to read. Andrew's lip quivered. Can I read her one tonight? He could barely speak. Sure, Heather said. It's late, but she wants to see you. After he'd washed for the third time that day and changed his clothes into something he'd hoped would stay presentable for the rest of the night, Andrew called a cab to take him up to River Road, where their old house was. The medical bills meant he couldn't run a car, and the subway was off-limits, so the taxi service was essential to his infrequent trips onto the streets of Chicago. The driver said nothing as they drove up to the north side of the city, it was obvious he didn't want a carrier in his car, but the sheet of plexiglass between them seemed to make him amenable enough, just so long as there was no conversation. The arrangement suited Andrew. He sat there in the back seat, thinking of Sonny. Had she really been talking about him? Had she really saved a story in every one of her books just to hear the way he'd read it? Something moved like a slow storm in his aching cells. He couldn't put his finger on it, but somehow it almost felt like hope. He didn't even notice the streets outside, strewn as they were with the odd clutter of debris, evidence that the protests today had become riots and that the riots had spread. Every now and then he'd become aware of the graffiti clinging to the brick walls like a multicolored arabesque. Andrew had always thought there was something both heartbroken and mundane about graffiti. It was stoic, yet cynical, too. 
It seemed to grab the zeitgeist and hold on to it lightly, almost ironically. The graffiti of these times was no different. Somewhere, someone had scrawled a puerile caricature of a SIAV sufferer, complete with gnashing teeth and red paint sores. An arrow was pointing at the rendering's head. Dead man walking was the tag. Somewhere else, the message was simple. Wake up. The virus is a bioweapon. In a third place, there was a caption showing no real signs of art that was, nonetheless, full of desperate sincerity. S-I-A-V, us, was all it read. Andrew closed his eyes after a while. The fog was only growing thicker, and that, coupled with his ever-worsening memory, meant that he almost neglected to tell the driver where to stop. When he did, he got out and paid the driver through the half-inch gap he allowed in the front window. The cab screeched away, leaving Andrew alone on River Road, just a short walk from the house he once called home, where Heather and Sonny still lived. He put his hands in his coat pockets. They tended to chap and bleed in the weather, as cold as this, and he wanted to remain as human-looking as possible for Sonny's sake. He walked down the length of the road with the houses on his right and the darkness of Robinson Woods on his left. Before he'd gotten sick, he'd heard the old ghost stories about those woods, stories of preternatural smells, stories of ectoplasm floating between the trees, stories of black shapes moving in the windless copses. Andrew looked down at his dark shadow on the road ahead. Christ! He almost laughed. He was the dark shape now, and he could feel it as the decent folk of River Road, who'd once been his neighbors, eyed him with fear and mistrust from the safety of their living rooms. He shambled up the path, conscious of the damage the cold was doing to his already damaged skin. When he reached the door, he knocked at once. There was silence inside. The wind hissed in the trees. Moments later, the door was opened, cautiously, and Andrew caught the first glimpse of his ex-wife in weeks. She opened up more fully, looked around to see who was looking, then ushered Andrew inside. Christ, she said, staring at him like he was some kid's science experiment. Andy, you look like shit. Yeah, Andy nodded. Thanks for reminding me. Is she awake? He looked up the stairway to the darkened first floor, where he knew his daughter still slept. No, Heather answered. I'll wake her in a while. Do you want a coffee? Andrew felt the stinging pain in his guts intensify. I'm gonna say no, he said a little bitterly. I only vomited my stomach lining today, and I'm not sure how coffee'll sit. Heather made a horrified face, and Andrew returned a disgusted one. Heather, he said, let's not. Not what? she asked. You and me, he tried to explain. Let's not talk. I'm sorry, but the only thing I care about is Sonny. Heather looked at him strangely. 
At first, he couldn't place the expression. Then he was shocked to see she seemed genuinely hurt by what he'd said. I'm sorry, he repeated. It's just, we've been together. She frowned, puzzled, concerned. We've done things together, he said. Human things. Then he smiled at her. But I'm not that anymore. She turned away from him a little, and he could tell she was fighting hard not to show her emotions. I'll take you to her, she said sharply, and led her ex-husband briskly up the stairs. Andrew watched from the bedroom door as Heather sat on her daughter's bed. She put a motherly hand on Sonny's shoulder and shook her, soothingly. Sonny, she whispered. Sonny, wake up, baby. Andrew's cells shivered as Sonny's eyes flickered. Then, when they opened, the cells caught on fire. Look who's here, baby, Heather said. It's Daddy. Sonny sat up in bed and stared across at Andrew with her puffy, pink-rimmed eyes. She frowned, her mother's critical face in miniature. Daddy? Andrew smiled and put out his arms. That's all it took for Sonny to jump up on the bed, bound across the small room, and jump up into her father's hold. Daddy! She squealed, squirming in his arms. Daddy, I love you! Andrew cried. I love you too, baby girl. He nuzzled into her webs of blonde hair, smelling her fresh, healthy, baby-clean scent. His dying cells seemed almost alive again. Heather stood by the bed, now watching them. She was smiling. I'll leave you two guys alone, she said. Andrew knew it was selfish and wrong to be pleased. After all, there'd been a time when he'd loved her too. But in reality, he hardly even noticed Heather as she left the room. Tell me a story, Daddy. Sonny said, bouncing onto the bed beside him and negotiating a golden collection of fairy tales into his hand. Andrew would never cease to be amazed at kids, especially this kid. Months apart, yet the way she was acting, it might have been hours since they last interacted. He tried his best to keep his emotions as carefree as hers. Okay, he said. He opened the book and looked down at the words through the milky films that covered both eyes. The print was garbled and nonsensical, and he was beginning to believe that the problem wasn't only visual. He looked up at her. I'm sorry, baby. I can't. I can't see right. Sonny tilted her head to one side, thinking. That's okay, she said at last bouncing closer and nuzzling in under his arm. Tell me one from your imagination. Andrew stroked her hair. He thought. Then he smiled. Okay, he said. Let's see. There was a tiny pause as he tried to organize the story in his head, the way it had been told in his own childhood. Well, he began, once upon a time there was this milliner, What's a milliner, Daddy? Sonny asked at once. It's a guy who makes hats. 
Mrs. Interrupty. Sonny laughed quietly to herself. Now, Andrew resumed, the milliner was coming home, you see, from selling hats in a town, miles from where he lived, and because he wanted to save time, he decided to cut through this ginormous, dark, kind of creepy forest. Well, he hadn't been going long. When he became, well, he got lost. And the only light he could see was the tiny little one way off in the middle of the forest. So he kept walking, just walking towards the light. And when he got there, he saw that it was just the top window of a huge tall tower. And around the tower were growing these absolutely gorgeous roses. Oh, dear me, the old milliner said. I just bet my daughter back home would love one of those gorgeous roses. He had a daughter, Sonny squeaked. Of course he did, Andrew answered. What was her name, Daddy? Well, her name was Sonny, of course. He tickled her ribs. She laughed and squirmed playfully away from his fingers. So the old milliner went to the nearest rose bush and picked one of those gorgeous roses for his daughter, Sonny. But no sooner had he broken the stem than a horrible voice. Well, it just bellowed through the rose garden. How dare you pick my roses? Who was it, Daddy? Sonny demanded. The milliner thought the same thing, Andrew told her. And he turned to the owner of the voice to find out just who he was dealing with. And a big shiver ran up his spine because there, right in the middle of the rose garden, was the ugliest man he'd ever seen. How dare you touch my roses, said the ugly man. Now you must pay with your life. But the milliner fell down on his knees and he begged and he begged. "'Please,' he said. "'I never meant you any harm. "'I just wanted one of your gorgeous roses "'to give my daughter as a present.' "'Your daughter?' said the ugly man. "'Very well. "'In that case, your punishment for picking my special roses "'is that your daughter must come and stay here in the castle with me.' "'Sonny jumped up and pushed her daddy's shoulders in protest. Sonny doesn't want to live with that ugly old man. She laughed. Well, she must. Andrew grabbed his kid around the waist and play-wrestled her to the bed. She must. She must. Sonny giggled and kicked and protested for all she was worth. When she'd calmed down, Andrew continued the story. So, he said, pushing a chaotic fall of hair from his daughter's eyes, Sonny had to stay with the ugly man. But you know what? What? Sonny whispered, totally spellbound. Sonny was so nice, so good, that no matter how much the ugly man shouted, no matter how ugly he was, she still loved him. She loved him? Sonny said in astonishment. She did. Andrew's eyes were full of tears. And, you know what, baby girl? 
Every day with Sonny made the ugly man feel better and better until he didn't feel bad at all anymore. He smiled at her, her little arms hugging his arms, his tiny eyes looking into his sick ones without a hint of fear. The whole thing was ringing in him like a clear bell. Now, he croaked, time for little girls to be in bed. He tucked her in under the warm, soft covers. Daddy? she said. Yes, baby. Were they together forever? she asked, Sonny and the ugly man. Andrew smiled reassuringly. Then he leaned down and kissed her forehead lightly. Oh, yes, baby girl, he said. I think they lived happily ever after. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I hope you enjoyed Sunny and the Ugly Man, as written by B.T. Joy and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed that first story and would like to see more of the author's work and discover where you can pick up a copy of one of his many anthologies that he's been featured in over the years, just visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash joy. That's simplyscarypodcast.com slash joy spelled J-O-Y, and you'll be redirected to the author's website where you'll find more information about their work, links to books for sale, and learn more about them and how you can connect with them online. As a reminder, that last tale was featured in the horror anthology Sunny with a Chance of Zombies, a sensational selection of strangely uplifting stories to help raise a smile at the end of the world. You can find it now on Amazon.com. Just search for it by name. If you pick up a copy and enjoy it, be sure to leave a five-star review and a kind word on Amazon 
and let the publishers know you heard about them here on this show. Thanks again for your support of this show and of tonight's featured author. Up next, we've got a second tale of terror for you, courtesy once again of B.T. Joy. In it, we'll meet Ethan, a gentleman with a history of trauma, and who is determined to get closure, no matter what. Without further ado, I present to you The Tower. They'd stopped on Wind Street outside St. James. Ethan hadn't broken his silence for a moment as he parked up by the church, and Laura knew better than to challenge his decision. At the best of times, when Ethan needed silence, he needed silence. And this wasn't the best of times. From here, they could both see the gray lines of Interstate 49, stretching clear back to Shreveport, where it joined the roads that led onto Texas, Arkansas, and Mississippi, or to anywhere, for that matter, but the place they were going to. Ethan touched his lips with his tongue. Laura watched him quietly, quite aware of his tells by now, but conscious not to be the first to speak. "'We've come too early,' Ethan said at last, having wet his lips a few more times out of habit. Laura looked at the dashboard clock. It was eight in the morning, and they'd touched down in Alexandria International about 5.30. They'd stopped in at the airport to eat. They checked out the condition of the rental car so many times that the agent flat-out told Ethan he had better things to do. They'd driven as slow as possible into the city center, and all this without so much as exchanging two words between them. You've got all the time you need, she told him. Do you want to talk about it? The morning sunlight was cool and yellow on the road up in front of them. Up ahead, Ethan watched a cooper's hawk sail down onto a telephone pole. Wait a minute, cock its head, and fly off again. He shivered visibly when Laura touched his arm. Ethan. She did her best to catch eye contact as he looked at her. Do you want to talk? Ethan's eyes grew less wide. He tried unsuccessfully to look less on edge. Then he shook his head and adjusted his body so Laura was no longer touching him. I'll be fine, he said flatly. We've come too early is all. It wasn't like this. Laura breathed out. Ethan, you remember what Dr. Brader said. We can't fix it on the details. It isn't going to be the way it was. Things have changed. You've changed. Ethan just kept staring out the window. He wouldn't close his eyes, not while Laura was there. Not while she could see him. But he knew if he did, he'd have smelled the wild, bone-set flowers again. And a lemon mint heating under rows of tomato plants. Then brick dust and cobwebs strung out in the cool shade, stringing through his hair and slithering across the skin of his face. He was thirty-two that year, and yet still, whenever he closed his eyes, he was eleven years old again. Nothing ever changed. Laura tried not to see the eight-block journey to the Fourth Street Motel as a retreat. She suggested to Ethan that 
If, as he'd claimed, jet lag was his only problem, then they could take the short drive to Marksville and find somewhere there to check in, have a bite to eat, and a rest. Then they could set out again in the afternoon. That was nearer the time, she said, wasn't it? She'd known she'd lost when Ethan started to bite his upper lip. For him, the Red River, running between Alexandria and Marksville, was not only a geographical but a psychological barrier. Really, she thought, while they rode backward to the motel, she shouldn't have been giving him more leeway. This was the first time, since he was a teenager, that he'd gathered together enough guts to even return to the state of Louisiana. When they'd met, Laura had pegged him as a born-bred New Englander, just like herself. She'd been more than surprised to hear, after his second big breakdown, that in reality, Ethan had been born and raised right here in Alexandria, and spoke with a southern drawl until the age of sixteen. It's a form of self-deception, Dr. Brader had told Ethan once, and Ethan had told lawyer, if it's the way he did as a child, then maybe he wasn't that child. Then maybe those awful things didn't happen. They pulled into the parking lot on the corner of 4th and Fisk Street. Ethan let the engine die. I'm sorry about this, he said. I always told myself I wouldn't drag you into this mess. Don't talk like that, Ethan, she answered him. You're doing fine. He looked at her skeptically. Come on, Laura. I can't even cross the river. She grabbed his hand. You will, though. Will I? He smiled weakly. He looked down at her hand, holding his breath so sincerely. When I look at you, he kept looking at her hands, unwilling or unable to make eye contact, I see how successful you are, and how clever, and how pretty. Ethan, for goodness sake. Let me finish. He looked at her at last, shaking his head. I just... I just can't see why you'd want to spend so long dealing with my problems. She tightened her grip twice over his hand and stared directly into his eyes. They're our problems, Ethan, she insisted. And once we get over that river, once we get back to Marksville and see that place, you're going to realize it can't hurt you anymore. She saw him begin to bite his lip and pulled him into her to stop him. She held his neck. She kissed his ear. You were a little boy, Ethan, she said. You were a little boy when it happened. The tower had stood in a small farm back then, a mile or two outside of Marksville, between the bank of the Red River and a small flooded strip of grassy bog where families of wood ducks paddled and sailed letting out their tall, sharp yipes of sound into the heavy afternoons. It was stone-built, and its architecture showed Spanish and Sephardic influences that predated even the Louisiana Purchase. The local assumption, therefore, passed down through generations, with no actual archaeological evidence, was that it had been a lighthouse erected by La Salle and his men, after they claimed the river land for Louis the Fourteenth, Such structures had existed, it was true, but then, being made of wood, they'd all rotted away centuries ago and fallen into the drink. 
Why had only that one been built from clean-cut stone? Why did it have characters from some script foreign to Latin engraved in arches around its doors and windows? And why had every entranceway been walled up by blocks of material just as old as the edifice itself? For Ethan and his friends from Alexandria, those questions presented an almost magnetic pull. All summer, the game was the same. Bike out of Alexandria, along the Red River Road to the bridge, and down into the farm, where the farmer never farmed. Where the rows of tomatoes and frowsy zucchinis coexisted with wild berries and tall stands of boneset crowned in fragrant white flowers. Every day they'd lay their bikes in all that green smell and maunder. They'd thrown off shirts and run their jeans wet in the shallow of the river, chase the wood ducks and then lie by the bank in the heavy heat and let the denim dry to their skins. Sometimes Ethan would walk around and around the tower, trying to imagine where the builder had lain the first stone. The graven symbols filled him with boyish wonder, and it wasn't too long before he'd stay an extra quarter hour after his friends had decided to bike it back home. Don't worry about me, guys, he said. I'm right behind you. But the time spent alone grew longer and longer, whole hours staring up at the darkening sky with its blues and browns in the height of the tower above his head. After a while, he began bringing his Swiss army knife, the one his dad had bought him for his birthday that year. And... Only ever, when the other guys left, he'd start to worry the longest of the blades between the rotten interstices of the stones, the stones that had been placed in the blocked-up entranceways, almost as though someone were trying to keep him out. Ethan woke in a strange bread and clawed off the blankets. He rolled onto his stomach, choked, hocked, and spat onto the motel room floor. Blood was running through the gaps between his teeth and slavering over his chin. Ethan! The lights burst on and Ethan rolled pathetically onto his back like an upturned insect. Laura grabbed his arm and tried to pull him upright on the bed. Ethan, it's okay. You've just bitten yourself again. He spat up more blood and tried to wipe it away on the back of his hand. It's okay, Laura insisted. She pulled him off the bed and led him off to the bathroom. He leaned his feeble weight on her shoulders the whole time. Laura knew the drill. Hell, Ethan bled nearly every time he had the nightmare. Once he'd driven his teeth so far into the flesh of his upper lip, they had to take a trip to the emergency room that night, where he'd been given two butterfly stitches. In some lights, you could still see the tiny white scar that laced across his philtrum. When they reached the wash basin, Ethan leaned down on it, and Laura took the chance to twist on the water and grab a washcloth. She held the rag under the flow, wrung it out, and then pressed it against her boyfriend's face, staunching the red flow. It's okay, she whispered. For goodness sake, Laura, Ethan pounded his fists on the stand. Stop saying that! Laura looked concernedly into his face. His eyes were staring furiously onto the mirror, and 
if she was truthful. The sound of anger in his voice had frightened her. Ethan broke eye contact with himself in the glass and glanced at her. Her startled expression told him everything. I'm sorry, he said a little laboredly. I just, I just can't stand this. Her feelings of concern turned back to feelings of sympathy. Her default for so much of their relationship. And she began running the washcloth tenderly over his skin again. The guy on reception gave the couple a strange look when they reemerged into the lobby of that 4th Street Super 8. They'd only checked in a matter of hours ago, and now they were checking back out, with him having bloodstains all down the front of his white flannel shirt. Laura made no reference to Ethan's condition as she signed them out. What could she say? Sometimes my boyfriend's dreams are so intense... He bites his own lip until they bleed? No. Better just to let the receptionist imagine whatever sordid motel blood play sex game he thought they'd engaged in and be done with it. When they finally get back on the road, Ethan agreed that Laura should drive. I don't think I can do it myself, he said. I need you. As they made their way to Wind Street, Laura thought about that and about how much Ethan needed her. She'd have been with him forever if she could, but how could you be there for someone in his nightmares? How far did you get? She asked after a short silence. What do you mean? Ethan replied. In the nightmare, how far did you get? He shook his head. I... I don't remember. It's a form of self-deception, Laura. She heard Dr. Brader's voice. By this time, Ethan is very skilled in self-deception. He can repress any memory he wants. You do remember. Laura insisted. Then she glanced at him in the rearview. Ethan, please, tell me. She could see tears starting in Ethan's boyish eyes and his red, crusty lips were shuddering. I remember the smell, he said. The bone set and that, that sick, lemony smell. I remember the light on the water and the wood duck screaming. He stopped. Go on, Laura prompted. He stared ahead. They were passing St. James, making their way onto Route 167 that ghosted the Red River straight into Marksville. I'm digging away a stone from the entranceway. Ethan was entranced, almost back in the dream. After a while, it just slides away in my hands. I can see the inside through the hole that's left, and I can smell this smell like brick dust and cobwebs, like unwashed skin. He looked at her self-consciously. I don't want to go on, he said. Ethan! Please, Laura. He looked at his lap. Self-deception, Laura thought. All self-deception. She glanced at him one more time, then fixed her eyes on the road ahead. She kept on driving. They passed through Effie around noon, then crossed the river for the last time. The high sun flashed like bashed gold across a long and flooded stretch of grass and as they alighted from the road bridge, Laura pulled into a park 
in a small lay-by that ran alongside an extinct vegetable farm. We're here, she said, and then she let the silence hang in the air. Ethan's eyes were closed and his face was tucked into his chest. Inside the darkness, behind his eyelids, Laura knew he was seeing it all afresh. Himself at eleven, squirming in through the hole he'd wheedled out of the ancient masonry. How he got soot and ground wet soil on his after-school clothes as he pushed inside and crawled out from under the wall onto a spiral staircase that led into an attic room, high above the tomato farm, a space that no other human soul had seen in nearly three hundred years. Maybe it had been a lighthouse once, calling ships inexorably down the black rivers of seventeenth-century Louisiana, and later, and just as inexorably, calling Ethan's boyhood body upward to that claustrophobic loft. She took his hand. You don't need to open your eyes until you want to, Ethan. She whispered, but I'm looking at it now. She couldn't see it well, just a straight and largely unremarkable gray shape among the green flood banks, nothing you wouldn't drive by a hundred times without noticing. She almost laughed. Was this really the center of all his suffering? It's just a tower, Ethan. She smiled. Then she looked at him. He was trembling, slowly and softly nibbling at his upper lip. It's okay, she said, leaning in, holding his neck, kissing his ear. It's okay. I'm scared, he stammered. I know, she said. But it never happened, Ethan. What you always say happened, what you dream happening, it never happened like that. Ethan never spoke, and so Laura kept speaking. You went inside. You found the staircase that led you to the top of the tower, and you climbed. You were such a curious little boy. That's all you did wrong. She kissed his closed eyes. But there was something living up there, in the loft. Police said that must have been why the stone slid away so easy. He'd removed it before you. He'd gotten up there and was living up there. There was no monster, Ethan. Even in the heat, Ethan was shivering with cold. There was, Laura. You didn't see him. It's all deception, Ethan. Remember what Dr. Brader said. It's deception. You couldn't handle what he really did. You didn't even know what had happened. Not really. And so your brain made up this story about a monster living in the tower. She kissed him again. Ethan, baby, I'm sorry. You went into that tower, into the loft, and he attacked you. He raped you, Ethan. Ethan's teeth strained on his fleshy, bruised lips. Laura held his face, forcing him to relax. Open your eyes. Come on, Ethan. Open your eyes and look at it. She turned his face, and almost out of reflex, he opened his eyes. The tower was the first thing he saw, gray and straight and sharp as a stab wound in the clean blue sky. Somewhere off in a river, a wood duck was screaming out its screeching sound. They sat in the car for a few hours after that, saying very little. 
Ethan was staring downhill to the farm and the riverbank and the tower he avoided since he had been a kid. Laura was sitting in silence and letting him think. In the end, it was Ethan who spoke first. I dreamed about the tower before that night, he said. Remember I told you the folk around here thought it was a lighthouse? Laura nodded. I used to imagine that, Ethan was smiling. The old Baroques, like the ones the French traveled in, in King Louis's time, pushing full sail upriver, and that tower shining. There'd be nothing in the sky, see. Not back then, no lights in the skyline. Just that one shining, calling them in. And I dreamed sometimes I saw the tower, and the top was burning, and there was a sound coming, like chanting, and I knew I had to go. She touched his shoulder. You never told me about that. I never told anyone. He looked at her sincerely. You're the first one. She smiled and he smiled. Then he looked back almost energetically toward the tower. I want to go down. His tone was so assertive, Laura was hard-pressed to believe it was her boyfriend speaking. Ethan had never said an assertive sentence to her in all the years they'd dated. She'd always been the strong one. Why? she asked. He was already opening the car door. I want to see it closer, he said, pulling himself out into the open air and leaving Laura no choice but to follow after him. The sky around the tower was bruising purple, and though the night was stifling warm, the growing dark seemed cold enough for Laura to pull her coat shut over her chest. We should go, she called to him. He'd just come into view again, having circled the tower for the hundredth time, his hand never leaving its warm stones as he orbited the structure like a moon around a dead planet. He was smiling the whole time. He ran into the field and grabbed Laura playfully by the wrists. Oh, baby, just twenty more minutes, please. He smiled at her, then kissed her hard on his bloody lips. She tried not to seem like she was pushing him away. Okay, she said, taking back her hands. Twenty minutes, then we've got to start heading back. We can come again tomorrow if you need to. Ethan laughed. Oh, baby. I never need to come again. Damn, I feel so goddamn free. His eyes sparkled, and he looked up at the top room above their heads, the place where, twenty years before, a lurking pedophile held his slim body against the chalky stones, forcing his stained fingers into his throat, forcing himself on the boy. Ethan howled with laughter and swayed on his heels, looking upward like a Ritual inebriant paying wild homage to the divine stars. Ethan, Laura tried to touch him, to calm him. Ethan swung out of her reach, then his delighted eyes caught on hers. Life's going to be so much better now, Laura, he smiled. Hey, baby, go up to the car. Please find my mobile. Uh, it should be in the dash. Why? Laura was getting more puzzled by the moment. I want to call Dr. Brader, he said excitedly. It's outside office hours, Laura objected. Ethan shook off her complaint. 
He told me this weekend to call anytime. He knows how big a deal this is for me. Please, baby, just get the phone. Okay, Laura looked at him sternly. But after you've called, we need to get right back to the car and head for Alexandria. Ethan raised three fingers on his right hand. Scout's honor, he promised. She found Ethan's cell exactly where he said it was in the dash with the sat-nav they never used. She retrieved it and pulled herself out of the car, looking down the now dark decline toward the tomato fields with their dancing bone set in one overbearing building. She couldn't see Ethan down there anymore and guessed he was doing another crazed circuit of this now strangely beloved tower. She didn't mind. It was for the best that he was out of sight. She wanted to call Dr. Brader herself before she passed him the phone to discuss his strange reaction to seeing the place that had cost him such indescribable torment. She stole another look. There was still no Ethan, and so she fired up his phone, found contacts, and started scrolling through, only stopping when she came to Doc Brader. She clicked down and placed the receiver to her ear. There was only a ring or two before the call was picked up. Mike Brader, the doctor answered. Doctor, Laura said, I'm sorry for calling so late. Sorry, who's speaking? Brader asked. It's Laura McCarthy, Dr. Brader, she replied. I'm calling about Ethan Dwight. I'm sorry for the hour. Oh, Laura, yes. Brader was smiling his side. That's fine. I'd asked Ethan to give me a call. Technically, he's no longer my patient, but I'm in favor of post-care. Can I speak to him? Sure, doctor, she said. We're there now, at, you know, at the place. Only, only what, Laura? Only, doctor, his reaction to seeing the place? I wouldn't read too much into that. Brader was still smiling. What? Laura asked. Into his reaction, Laura. His visible reaction, at least. Laura frowned. But why? Just think, Laura, Brader said. Ethan came to Bangor when he was 16 years old. On his first three job applications, he claimed to have been brought up at 124 Cedar Street. According to his friends, he went to middle school at James F. Dowdy, and he high-schooled at John the Baptist Memorial. But not one person knew him from those days. He even learned, albeit subconsciously, to speak with a banger accent. Laura, his entire life, has been an exercise in avoidance and self-deceit. What makes you think he's being honest about his feelings now? Laura couldn't believe what she was hearing. Brader had never shown nerve like this when he was getting a paycheck. He was practically calling Ethan a liar. Ethan has problems admitting the truth to himself, doctor, she insisted. He's never purposely lied to me. Brader was making a sound of it lying. Laura frowned and listened harder. Was he laughing? Oh, Laura, he said. In order to lie to ourselves, we've got to lie to one another. Laura pulled the phone away from her ear like something venomous and killed the call in disgust. It took her a full few minutes to come around from the short conversation 
It's a form of self-deception, Laura. He's deceiving himself. He's deceiving you. She tucked the phone into her coat pocket and stared again down the river and rise. Still, after all these times, Ethan was nowhere to be seen. When she got back to the tower, Laura was horrified at what she saw. Ethan, what have you done? She fell down on her knees in soot and saw by a collection of four large stones that had been yanked out from one of the walled-up entranceways, leaving a hole there just big enough for an average-sized man to wriggle through. Ethan's childhood Swiss army knife was lying open by the extricated blocks, and Laura's skin crawled at the thought that he must have carried it in his pocket all the way from Alexandria. She pulled herself to her feet and threw her hands, palms down, on the now cooling stone. Ethan! Baby! Where are you? You're scaring me! She listened to the soft hiss behind the rocks. Nothing. Ethan! She listened again, this time for longer. At last, after long seconds, she began to make out the sound of a man lightly laughing in the cavity beyond. She pressed her face to the tower. Ethan! She whispered. It's okay, baby, he whispered back. I'm in here. But why? I wanted a closer look, Laura. There was something so strange about his voice. I wanted to be in here again, where I first met him. Ethan, please. Laura's crying into the indifferent walls. I'm scared. Oh, Ethan whined. Don't be scared, beautiful. I'm happy. And I'm just about to get happier. What do you mean? Ethan laughed behind the wall. I'm going up there, Laura. I'm going up to the loft. No, Ethan, please, come out, come out. Well, I can't now, beautiful. He was smiling in there. It's like a light. It's drawing me in. Her throat began to spasm with the fear, and she found she couldn't find voice enough to protest. Even when she heard his feet turning on the dusty ground inside, as they began determinedly to climb the spiral stairs to the room above. The face was just large enough to admit her, and Laura remembered thinking how determined Ethan must have been to squirm through that tight crevice into the space beyond, the multiple horrific contortions he must have performed with his body. She crawled at the earthen ground on the inside of the tower, tugging the last of her length through the gap in the wall and surfacing on the other side. She stood. She was filthy from head to foot, her skin ticklish with cobwebs, and she could smell much better from here the almost sweet aroma that Ethan had described to her a hundred times, the dirty, rotten flesh smell of his nightmares. She looked up the spiral staircase and screamed, Ethan! Then she noticed it, cutting down from above the only reason the entire upward passageway wasn't lost in abysmal darkness. From somewhere above, a light was shining. A torch, Laura thought. If he brought his knife, maybe he brought a torch, too, so he could see in the dark. 
His skin crawled again. He's been planning this. She looked up again. Ethan! 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 There was no answer from above, and so Laura steeled herself and started the long climb upward. It was about halfway to the top when Laura realized it wasn't just light drifting down from the higher quarters of the tower. Sound, too, rang discordantly over the acoustically jarring rocks. I dreamed sometimes. I saw the tower, and the top was burning, and there was a sound coming, like chanting. Chanting. As Laura reached the final steps, she realized that's exactly what it was. A man's voice. Not Ethan's, but a man's. Reciting some mantra in a language other than English. Melek, Melek, bin Shedem, Abra Rish. Melek, Melek, bin Shedem, Abra Rish. Melek, Melek, bin Shedem, Abra Rish. Her eyes were so wide they hurt, trying to pull in as much light as possible as she stepped terrified into the highest room. Ethan was there, and her heart leapt with relief to see him. He was kneeling in the center of the room. Ethan! She moved towards him. But then she stopped dead, watching the man she loved like watching a nightmare as he moved liquidly to his feet and turned to face her. His bloody, bitten lips were moving in constant obeisance. Malek! Malek! Bin Shedem Abra Rish! Malek! Malek! Bin Shedem Abra Rish! Ethan, what are you doing? He stopped chanting and cocked his head. In the painfully lit room, his eyes were almost black. Nothing important, honey, he said. Her stomach turned. In that moment, she realized what had been so strange about his voice. He was speaking in his old Louisiana drawl, the one he'd dropped when he was sixteen. Why are you speaking like that? She was heartbroken and terrified, all at the same time. Why, honey? Ethan smiled. I always talk like this. When you ain't around. Laura made a break for the stairs, but... Ethan moved twice as quickly and caught her hard around the waist. Get off me, you idiot! She started putting all her strength into striking him around the face and head. Get off! Ooh, honey, he laughed. That there's the energy we need. That there's the energy he took from me all those years ago. You maniac! She landed a good hit. Ethan's nose cracked at the bridge. A flow of hot blood streamed out of his nostrils streaking down his already tarnished shirt. He turned unfazed to face Laura, licking the blood and mucus off his face with his long tongue. There is no him, you lunatic! She couldn't hold back anymore. Some guy raped you up here. Can't you get that through your thick skull? Some pervert put his dick in you. Get it, retard? She was trying to bait him, to humiliate some sense into him. Ethan laughed, pushing the last of the blood into his mouth with his soiled fingers. Is that what you think, honey? He smiled. That's what I know. Laura clenched her teeth. 
Then why didn't the police find this mystery man? Ethan asked. He moved town, Laura reasoned. He got away. And why did a dream of this place? Why did it draw me like a moth to a flame? Maybe you are insane, Laura cried. Maybe. Ethan grinned in the shifting shadows. But if that's so, tell me this, honey. What the hell is it that's lighting this place? Laura's throat seized up, her saliva dried out, and her heart became erratic. They were standing in a 300-year-old room, and Laura couldn't answer why it was illuminated as though by electric. And she didn't know, either why, the light and shadow had never stayed still for more than a moment since she arrived. Laura, honey, Ethan whispered, don't turn around. Her eyes wouldn't blink. Her neck wouldn't turn. The shadow in front of her, her own shadow, told her that the source of the light was behind her. Ethan started chanting again. Malik, Malik, bin shady my brarish. Malik, Malik, bin shady my brarish. Laura felt a thing behind her, burning her backbone like a wreath of fire, and in there, among all that rustle of protein light, there was a sound, too, the low and keening sound of an insect readying to be fed. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I hope you enjoyed The Tower by author B.T. Joy as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the tales you've heard tonight, I'd like to remind you again that Mr. Joy has been featured in countless horror anthologies over the years and has a wide collection of work just waiting to be enjoyed. If you're new to his work and would like to connect with him or learn more about where you can pick up copies of the books, 
he's been included in, visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash joy, spelled J-O-Y. Once more, that's simplyscarypodcast.com slash joy. You'll find yourself on BT's website, where you'll see links to his previous work, including his poetry. And again, if you give any of BT's work a read, please leave the publishers a quality review and a kind word. And be sure to let them know you heard about them here on this program and that Oldest Jiry sent you. It would mean a lot to me. I'd also like to take a moment to thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. And leave us a five-star review and a kind word as well. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at chillingtalesfordarknights.com, where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest episodes and updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014, and you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some rest. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. 
If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>